0: Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we have a repeat special guest. This week we're talking to Dr. Randy Jurdle, who was the third podcast guest in the entire series. Dr. Jurdle is on the show today to go deeper into his groundbreaking research in the era of epigenetics. As you can remember from the earlier conversation, he was nominated in 2007 by Time Magazine for The person of the year. The reason being, they said, was that Dr. Journal's pioneering work in epigenetics and genomic imprinting has uncovered a vast territory in which a gene represents less of an inexorable sentence and more of an access point for the environment to modify the genome. His trailblazing discoveries have produced a far more complete and useful understanding of human development and diseases, end quote. So for me, the first episode was ground zero for our understanding of the underpinnings of human disease from the womb all the way until death. We took a very deep dive the first time in the specific initial research with the Agouti mouse model that I highly encourage you to listen to if you haven't before going on to this podcast. This time we're going to take a different deep dive into a second part of his research experience over time, and that's the Imprintome, which is basically a genomic map of the candidate human imprint control regions that are involved in all of the downstream effects of our DNA being read. The paper was published in the journal Epigenetics and it was published in 2022. The abstract in that paper states, imprinted genes critical for growth, metabolism, and neuronal function are expressed from one parental allele. Parent of origin dependent CpG methylation regulates this expression at imprint control regions, ICRs. Since ICRs are established before tissue specification, these methylation marks are similar across cell types. Thus, they are attractive for investigating the developmental origins of adult diseases using accessible tissues, but remain unknown. We determine genome-wide candidate ICRs, imprint control regions, in humans by performing whole genome sequencing, of DNA derived from three germ layers and from gametes. We identified 1,488 hemimethylated candidate ICRs, including 19 of 25 previously characterized ICRs. Gamete methylation approached 0% or 100% in 322 of the imprint control regions, supporting parent-of-origin specific methylation, and 65 were in well-described CTCF binding or DNA-SEL hypersensitive regions. This draft of human imprintome will allow for the systematic determination of the role of early acquired imprinted dysregulation in the pathogenesis of human diseases and developmental behavioral disorders. So, for those who don't have a strong background knowledge in epigenetics or genetics in general, that's a deep mouthful to swallow. Essentially, what we're going to talk about in this podcast is that there is an ability to understand now through the methylation or what we had talked about before, which is the epigenetic ability to silence or unsilence a sequence of our DNA, our book of life, to produce a protein that tells us who we are, whatever that cell type is that that protein is produced in. It turns out very carefully now that we're starting to understand that maternally and paternally inherited genes in certain regions are silenced or turned on in half of the parent's structure. So for example, if mom's DNA is silenced and dad's turned on, then that gene pathway goes down that specific route or vice versa. And then there's some stuff going on in between. And so what we're now learning is that Dr. Journal's group with Catherine Hoyo have now laid out, a framework from which we can now look at the methylation marks of the imprinted control regions, the ICRs, in tissues of humans to try and understand where upstream did the event change that leads to the downstream disease that we call adult disease or childhood disease. And so it's a very, 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 very complicated but yet elegant way of seeing disease. And if we can start to understand this using their blueprint, where we can test by looking at these imprinted control regions in tissue and say where the problem went wrong, we are now going to be able to now do studies to look at what's flipping these genes on or off. And do we know if it's plastics or chemicals or whatever? And those are the questions that need to be answered. But now we have a framework from which to use. And It's very much akin to the original work he did where we had a framework using the Goody mouse model to know that we are no longer Darwinianly set up for experience, that Lamarckian philosophy was true, and we can change throughout our lives based on methylation of our DNA that says to a gene to be silenced or unsilenced, leading to us, our phenotype, and how we look. And that's the critical part of the whole conversation. Remember, Dr. Jordan's biography was that he's a professor of epigenetics at the Department of Biological Sciences at the North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's a senior scientist at McCartle Laboratory for Cancer Research at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. He was the pathology and uh, director of radiation oncology and a professor of pathology at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina for many years from 1977 until his research switch over to NC State. He has a graduate degree in BA and in sciences, with nuclear engineering in 1970, and a PhD degree in radiation biology in 1976 from the University of Wisconsin Madison. His awards, there's many of them, and I won't list them here, but as you know from the first conversation with Dr. Jurdle, that he's a curious thinker, an onion peeler, and he has set us up for decades of amazing ability to do research to understand the fetal origins of disease that therefore we can now pull on levers to hopefully reverse the process of disease that's beginning in the womb or shortly thereafter. So with that being said, let's get into this fascinating conversation second time around with Professor Randy Journal. Well, Randy, as always, it's a pleasure to see you again, um, all the way back two-plus years ago when we sat down, first talked about your amazing work. I know it's the 20th anniversary of your seminal paper discussing the world of the agouti mouse and epigenetics, so we're going to get into your new work, the imprintome, so welcome. Thank
1: you very much, Chris, for inviting me on your show again, or your podcast, I should say.
0: Yeah, it's it's so exciting to talk about this stuff because this is your your work is basically how we can start to understand why we are who we are. And uh, I'm going to let you get into that in a minute, but let's first start with what's sitting behind you there. You have a couple stuffed animals, looks like three of them. Why do we have three stuffed animals there and what's the what's the purpose of it? Well, the
1: one here right back here I gave to my daughter. I think this was before I was even thinking about or it might've been back when I was thinking about looking at the, when did the phenomenon of genomic imprinting evolve? And I bought that for her, but I, I like it so much. I I When she left the house and got married, I kept it. <laughs> 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 but that's, that's definitely hers. Then right next to it is the other monotreme, the echidna. And then you have the wombat, which is a marsupial. And we used um, tissues from birds, Marsupials, monotremes, marsupials, and eutherian mammals, which we're members of, to look at when the phenomena of genomic imprinting evolved. And I think in 2000, uh, Keith Killian published the first paper in a series of three or four papers, which clearly demonstrated that the phenomena of genomic imprinting evolved about 150 million years ago in a common ancestor that gave rise to the therian mammals, which includes the wombat, the marsupials, and the eutherian mammals, which is us and most mammals that we we know of, but does not include the monotremes. So platypus and echidna and birds, and ultimately we looked at salamanders and things. No other animal species that we know of and looked at have genomically imprinted genes except for what we call therian mammals, which are animals that have Placentas and live birth—in other words, birth that doesn't occur in a heart from inside of a hard shell like a bird—or the monotremes are mammals, but they also lay an egg and they also do not have
0: imprinted genes. So it All looks right, like
1: this phenomena evolved with placentation
0: and live birth. Let's let's describe for the audience because uh, folks who may not have listened to the talk two years ago. You know, when we talk about this stuff, imprinted genes basically meaning it is is determined by the mother or father. So describe the imprinting gene and why this is so important, because there's an evolutionary reasoning as to why this came to be, as opposed to laying an egg, which seems to be a potentially easier process than birthing a live child. Correct.
1: So genomically imprinted genes are genes with a sex, and you already alluded to that. So they're they're, they're, uh, autosomal genes, so there's some evidence that there might even be imprinted genes on the X chromosome, which is really strange, and we won't get into this, but it's a very interesting concept and probably does exist. But they're all over the chromosomes, sort of randomly distributed, but tend to be more in the telomeres because that's where the breaks occur and that's so genes get shuffled a little more on the ends than they do internally. So, genomically the genes, though we inherit two copies, one from mom and one from dad, only one copy is functional. The other copy is silenced epigenetically. And that silencing occurs, the marking for that silencing occurs in the egg and the sperm. So, that's why a quote has a sex, because the marks come in from the two different sexes. And as a consequence, one is usually the methyl groups are added onto the DNA, and that's the copy that is silenced. And the one then, in let's say that happened in the egg, and then in the sperm, that re- same region is not methylated. So only one copy works. And in this case, the silenced copy would be the one that comes from the mom, where there will be other genes in which it's the other way around. The father's is work is silenced epigenetically, And the mother's copy is the only one that works. So these are monolithically expressed, only one copy works. And it's in a parent of origin dependent manner, very strange, uh, uh, non mendelian type inheritance for this class of genes. And it was postulated that this occurred because of a genetic conflict between males and females to control the controlled amount of nutrition. This is egg theory of conflict. Uh, be, to control the amount of nutrition the offspring can extract from the mother, with the father trying to maximize it in, in order to pass his genes forward, and the mother almost really having because this only occurs in in mammals that have live birth dampening this process down so that in effect, not in effect, in reality, she can give birth. In other words, if this occurs in utero and the thing is growing out of control and too fast, it can get to a point where the mother cannot give birth and the species would literally die out. And I always make the point that we found that this occurred 150 million years ago in a common ancestor to, as I said, theory Therian mammals. And this is a long time before C-section occurred. So I mean either you got to get this the baby out or you know the mother and the offspring dies which means if that happens a lot the species dies. So it's a continual yin and yang between the male and the female one to stimulate and the other one to knock it down so you can get the baby out and we're still here as a species. So we're right on a on a balancing point only one copy works two copies is too much no copies is death also, it's bad. Only one is what we need. And so you can deregulate this by a a single mutation or a single epigenetic event. There's no backup for these genes. They're dominant basically because they're functionally haploid.
0: Yeah, and it's super fascinating. So if you think back to evolution, the Darwinian understanding of this would have been that the genes are hardwired There's no soft wiring going on, there's no software, and I'll I'll let you discuss again your computer analogy, but in a Darwinian world, the, the gene that would be dysfunctional because the child would be too big, the mother dies, this propagation of species sort of disappears, so the gene that propagates would therefore be the one that allows for the child to be born in a normal size. Lamarck came along, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, if I remember, and he was the one who said, no, 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 there's intergenerational changes or interlife changes that are occurring, and that's the whole epigenetic understanding. So sort of explain again, because again, some people may have not listened to the original um, discussion around how this all ties together with your Goody Mouse. Explain the epigenetic phenomenon that is occurring that we're now seeing has played out 150 million years to make us so incredibly... Complex with only what 20 something thousand genes, which is sort of comical when you think about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, because people originally postulated that we would have between 50 and 100,000 genes, and literally, as of probably about a half a year ago or so, we're down now, I think, to 19,500 and some genes. It's and give it's people that, context how many genes does a wheat have? I don't know, but a lot more than that.
0: Yeah, it's like 150,000, I think uh, I
1: heard. It's insanity. So we're down to a very, very low number. And how do we, can we get the complexity? It's because of variation in expression, alternative start sites. So you have isoforms. Some of these isoforms will be expressed off of both copies. Some of them will be expressed only from one copy. And, and, and that copy, just because it's physically marked, these imprinted genes are marked, it doesn't have to be read. So you can have monoallelic expression of a gene. For example, the insulin-like growth factor two, which has been shown to be critically involved in in memory development and cognitive ability is expressed at least in mice. Now in humans, this is not clear yet, but in mice it's it's expressed from one copy in glial cells, but neuronal cells need two, two copies. When you only have a single copy, it drops down basically the cognitive ability of, we showed that in mice. We've never published that, but that's been demonstrated. And there's work, been a lot of work done uh, about the fact that IGF 2 and IGF 2R play a huge role in cognitive ability and probably as a consequence play a major role in neurological disorders. Uh, like Alzheimer's disease, autism, those kinds of diseases, and cognitive ability itself, probably. So you can get a lot of variation that's based on software, not just hardware. And that is great because you can speciate potentially wrap more rapidly based on software because you just have to change a few things and you're ready to go and it's it's very responsive to the environment whereas hardware it's very very fixed and very rigid and it wouldn't be plastic that the plasticity wouldn't be there that you need to survive i think really in the mod in the world really but there are advantages of it in that it's it's solid, you know, it just doesn't change much and it's much more rigid, but we're not on the, we didn't come on the back of that. We have mutations and hardware too, obviously, but a lot of this stuff occurred on the back of software. So the advantage is we could speciate probably quite rapidly in mammals, uh, to fill the niches that were present at that time, particularly after the dinosaurs died off about 70 or so million years ago. There were mammals before that, but they didn't have much chance. But once the whole thing was open, mammals popped up like crazy. And it's very interesting evolutionarily, there's one other place where imprinted genes occur and they have flourished also after that comet came in and smashed in and destroyed most of the species on earth and it's angiosperms, flowering plants. Those two big major things basically took over the world after that time, possibly because they could speciate rapidly on the back of epigenetic changes in imprinted genes is what I think. And other things, but they're software driven. The disadvantage, Chris, of this—and you know this better than I do—are behavioral disorders, neurological disorders, because they will occur more readily, and they will occur in response to the exposures to not nice things in our environment at too high a doses. Right, and so what I'm and that's the kind of stuff
0: you see probably all the time unfortunately way too often. And so what I'm hearing you say for the guests to understand, and again, this is why your work is so seminal to understanding almost all disease now, is that for millennia, So millions of years as the the species of mammals on the planet had the ability to change in real time based on wherever they found themselves, they were able to migrate across the globe and live in deserts, live in cold environments, live in wet environments, live in dry environments. So this ability allowed us as a species, mammals, particularly humans, this ability to take 19,000 genes and basically infinitely permutate them based on when and on you turn something on or off. You could basically at that point eat anything, live anything, do anything within reason. And now here comes the big crux of this. And this is where I want want you to go back and talk about your original work here. And then we're going to go back to the imprintome. So this is where we started to learn 20 years ago, how you in your lab with Rob Waterland first and then Dana Dolanoy second, how you started to show us, because up until this point, we were told all this stuff is junk dna it's deterministic you're you're a pro- you're a function of mom and dad put together and good luck buddy you're not getting anything else but you flipped all this on its head and so explain again to everyone what happened that told us the whole world of epigenetics well
1: we as i said back at that time that you're talking in 2000 now we've determined when the phenomena of genomic imprinting evolved and there were you knew that these and there were some of them that had already been defined remember this is before the human genome or any genome was known so we're working completely in the dark at this time it's hard for people now to imagine what it's like when you have no clue what the genome sequence is frankly even what this <laughs> even the sequence of the of the of the coding regions weren't even known it, it was a lot more difficult and yet we did some pretty, if you are, if, if you look at geneimprint.com, the first two, the first meeting ever in the United States was at in Durham, North Carolina. It's on the web, it's on the Durham 1998. So just before the turn of the millennium and many of these people now that are, were giving talks at that point are retired like sort of myself or they're at more towards the end of their career but yet we were doing pretty amazing stuff back at that time. So we knew there were regulatory elements that were there and some of them had already been defined and some sequences were even known. So the question that I had then at that point and probably other people too, was can the methylation groups that are, that are involved in, and also the histone marks, but DNA methylation is sort of a surrogate for, for changes that occur. Could those be altered by environmental changes? That was the question we had. We weren't really, we didn't. I didn't have to admit, I didn't go out and say, "Yeah, what's the what's the mechanism for the fetal origins of the doll disease susceptibility?" Ultimately, that's what we found, but it's not the way I formulated it. I formulated it as: Can the environment change DNA methylation at control regions? And one of the control regions that we knew were ones that controlled imprinting. So originally when Rob came in the lab, he wanted to look at whether that answered that question. The more we talked about it, we said, you know, even if we find a 10% change in methylation of these imprint regulatory elements, one copy will be methylated at these regions. The other copy will be unmethylated. So if you have 100% methylation, you add it to 0% methylation. And because there's two copies, you divide it by two, if you just grind up cells, these regions will look like they're 50% methylated, which is oxymoronic because you can't have 50% methylation, but that's the way they look because you've got both copies in your sequencing. So it just shows up as 50%, but one is unmethylated, the other is methylated the other way around. Right. And that's what those regions should be. So then they ask the question, if you expose them to things because methyl groups come all the methyl groups could come in from our diet if we hypermethylate can we change that if you hypomethylate does it change it and we were going to work in in imprint regulatory elements but i said if we see even 10 15 because most of the people then and frankly still actually chris think about life as being genomic you know it's all mutational driven Right. I said they—they'll just say it's not biologically relevant, relevant, and you'll spend the rest of your life, in effect, trying to say why ten or fifteen percent is important at these regions. So we—we we talked and we decided we would use the Agouti mouse model because it's connected very clearly to phenotypes. You can see changes. They're yellow. They're obese. They get diabetic, and they get cancer. I mean, that's an absolute given. If they're yellow, they're going to have this because of the way this gene, the Goody protein, works in the body. And that was known. But what wasn't known is whether or not you could alter that through changes in the the epigenome, through DNA methylation. And that's what we did in that study and showed that very clearly. So the very first time, changes in DNA methylation At a regulatory element for these genes, which are not imprinted, that gene, the Goody gene is not imprinted in that mouse. It's a metastable gene, but it's epigenetically regulated very clearly. So when it's unmethylated, the regulatory element, they're yellow. When it's methylated, they're brown. So you go between yellow and brown, basically, and you can just look at those two extremes and see whether or not doing something, in this case, we just filled a hopper with tons and tons of methyl groups and hoped that it would shift the color over and we would see an increased methylation at this transposable element that's controlling the expression. And that's what we showed clearly. And all of a sudden the whole field was changed because now what was before thought of by the, particularly the genetic people, that there's no known mechanism, no known mechanism by which this can occur. Now there is a mechanism. And the whole field changed because we now, we don't know what genes are altered this way, but that's things that you look at now. But you know that you have to look for software changes, not changes necessarily always in the genome and DNA itself. It opened up the whole box completely. And you now know that you're supposed to look over here for epigenetic changes in addition to mutations. And because that's... these methylation groups are added on top of the genome itself. And that's what that paper did.
0: Right. You basically proved Jean-Baptiste Lamarck 200 years later.
1: Yeah. In, in essence. That, that's an, an epigenetic right. phenomenon.
0: Yeah, you, you uh, basically he, gave him he post- had,
1: post- he, The post- question though, Chris, that he was talking about too was not just in that generation, but transgenerational inheritance. Correct. That's a different world that I have never gotten into Right. But there's more and more evidence that that is also epigenetic, and not all these marks are erased. And there's a memory of that that's getting transferred through the gametes into generation upon generation. This is the sins of the father, basically,
0: going four and five and six generations forward. But again, it's not this. So I'm going to push back a little bit because I don't think it's the sins of the father so much as this was expected to be beneficial based on. The way our mammalian system was constructed, it was expected that what we would go through in life would change the epigenetic marks in that generation, and then subsequent generations. It was perceived that that likely would be beneficial. The problem now comes, and this is where I want you to get to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna break down a little bit what you just said for everybody. So when I was in medical school, the introns and the exons are what we called our gene code. If you take the Watson and he, Watson and um, Crick helix and you unwind it and you just look at that as a, as a code, so just like a computer code, zeros and ones, but instead it's the, it's the um, amino acids. That whole structure dictates our biology, right? It's in every cell of our body. And the exons were considered the protein coding regions, which gives life to every protein we have. The introns were considered junk DNA, which again, I find comical that Emory University taught me the words junk DNA, annoying but reality. Those regions are what you're talking about are where the CPG islands and different regulatory spots are that we can put a carbon atom with three hydrogens that then says, hey, don't read this part downstream so that protein doesn't get read. In this case, you're talking about the agouti mouse, the agouti gene, which would predispose the mouse to being yellow- Let's remember if I'm correct. Yellow, overweight, diabetic, and prone to cancer. Correct. You silence that gene with food, mind you. This is the when other piece go back I Back
1: find- to the normal developmental regulation of the Goody gene and the animal is mean and lean and clean all of its life. You're correct. I mean, when you're talking about nutritional effects, the whole thing of when it's connected, for example, changes in the epigenome are, are caught... Connected, for example, to uh, obesity, diabetes, and cancer in people, for example, that were in the Dutch famine. I mean, that was a positive adaptive response actually to that famine environment it was setting up those individuals to be able to store energy very, very effectively. The problem was in a way was that the, the system worked well, but the next generation, they were in a an environment of a, a tremendous amount of food that they could get very, very easily. And these efficient people biochemically blew up like balloons, got diabetes and dying of cancer, increased instances of schizophrenia because there's a mismatch between what they perceive biochemically when they were in utero versus what they were in as an adult. Yeah. On top of that, though, we have the other thing, which you know, is when we're exposed to external compounds, endocrine disruptors at very high levels, for example, radiation at very high levels, not at low levels, but very high levels, it's very detrimental
0: uh, so so talk about that. That was Dana Donalinois' work. She was a toxicologist.
1: Correct. She, she then showed with bisphenol A, and we only did a single, single dose. And at the dose we sh- were looking at, which gave levels in mice that's sort of comparable to what we are exposed to ourselves and carry in, in individuals, demonstrated that that caused the distribution to shift towards the yellow, which is bad. And and they became diabetic and obese and stuff like this from an external compound that there was in the environment. And that the most important part of that was that if she then added DNA methyl donors into the diet, she could literally negate those negative effects. So in effect, food is truly medicine. And it's just balancing these two things at that very early stage when these marks are being put down. So even if you if you didn't have the high-methyl diet, for example, the animals in the offspring would be, in effect, on the average, would be in poor health. Whereas if you hype up the methyl groups in the mother while those marks are being placed and they're on bisphenol, exposed to bisphenol A, they come out basically just like normal.
0: Yeah. So and, and that was, yeah, that was a seminal moment for me. That was the I... most
1: important part of that whole study. actually. Totally. the fact 100%. that food could could negate these negative epigenetic programming, negative epigenetic programming effects.
0: And and I and I think your point earlier that plants are a bigger part of this too, because I think about just the hormetic effect, and you're sort of getting you're sort of alluding to that with radiation. Correct. Talk about how hormesis plays into our ability to evolve and be stronger like we see with plants, which I think is going sideways again because of all the pesticides and things we're doing to make the plants not have to have any mild stress.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can get into it very much, but I can tell you what we did with radiation again because it was it was a simple another very simple question I mean I had the I I mean you know it's in the in the Cameron lecture that I just gave but it was it's true. I had the whole paper written in my brain because I had thought about Dana's work with bisphenol A. I was taught that the linear no-threshold model for risk assessment in humans was correct. That was the correct model. And what that model states is that once you subtract background, basically, the risk, dose risk assessment, anything you're looking at, let's say cancer, from there on up, there's no dose that's not a radiation, that's not harmful. You will, and if you accept that, that means in in the Goody Mouse model, when we did the studies, which I told Autumn, we're going to do, frankly, we were just going to do a single dose. And we picked a dose that was one centigrade. Well, one centigrade is the level that if you were to CT scan your whole body, that's that's the level your body would get, one centigrade. Very low doses of radiation. X-rays would be, a 10th of that, like 100, a 10th of a centigrade. So that's the range that we were in. If just to put that in perspective, when you're doing radiation therapy for tumor treatment, we're up to 200 centigrade a day for 30 days. I mean, this is these are big, big doses that were being used for lethal effects. And for a whole body exposure to radiation, if you're exposed to 500 centigrade in a single dose, more than likely, you're not gonna make it. So we're way down, these are way down doses. And that's what we postulated. Well, it came out that it ended up that when we did this, almost all the offspring were brown. Those are the healthy animals. So at one centigrade, what it was doing is inducing a positive adaptive response and by If anybody knows about the phenomena of hormesis, it's basically we were in the middle of it. And I didn't want to be in the middle of it because nobody wants to think about things that are damaging at high doses could possibly be positively adaptive at low doses because of programming. And they came up with the same thing, Chris, the same comment in their arguments That we had for the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility. There is no known mechanism by which something that occurs at day one after fertilization, basically, can give rise to changes in health 20 and 30 years later. Right. It's the same argument. Right. And it's all based on this misinterpretation in that they made the assumption that the DNA was the whole story and the only thing that was important then to cause it to be problematic is through mutations in the dna itself but a cell is not a is not a hardwired computer it's a programmable computer there's the DNA I think of, as I said before, and you've talked, you alluded to that before, is that it's comparable to the computer itself, the hardware, and the epigenome is comparable to the software that runs in that computer. And that's why you have a single cell after fertilization ultimately gives rise to 260 different cell types. Every cell has the same computer, it has right. the same DNA, but yet it's doing 260 different jobs and creates what we see here, which is us and everything else around us. So it's a programmable computer. So anything that impinges on that computer can affect not only the hardware, but also the software. And at low doses of toxic compounds, the software has the ability through alterations in gene expression to in effect negate the negative effects. just like we talked about the negative effects of the original insult. Right,
0: yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's...
1: It's the that's same mic-
0: darn thing, Chris, it's the same thing. Right, which is what made us so damn adaptable as a species. Exactly. We're
1: incredibly adaptable, but we also, to a degree, we're somewhat vulnerable because software right. is easier to change. So once you get up past where you see these positive adaptive responses, now it's going to crash. It's going to be, right. you're going to see bad effects, not only in the software, but also in the hardware
0: itself. All right. Let me pause you there, because if this is a perfect time to inflect and go now over to the developmental uh, fetal origins of disease, because I think this is, again, as a pediatrician and somebody who cares about mothers tremendously, this is the space where your work, again, it blows the doors off of everything that modern medicine has been teaching us. So let's go back and define the imprintome the way you defined it, because, again, I think you coined the phrase, if I'm correct. In 2007. In 2007. Then- Right. Define imprintome. And then after you define imprintome, let's go into understanding from sperm meets egg. How does this go sideways? Right. And again, you've alluded to it already tremendously, but let's just walk through a process of sperm meets egg after you define imprintome.
1: So I define, and it's been misused as you already know, because the imprintome is not the repertoire of imprinted genes. It is not that. Where some people, and you read the literature, and people that are out listening will read the literature. They'll see some people that have already misused the terminology. I figure that since I defined it first and coined the word, that I have the ability to say what it is. (laughs) 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 Agreed. So it is this. It's very simple again, because it's basically all it is, is are all the regulatory elements for imprint gene expression throughout our whole genome. So every imprinted gene has got to have a regulation system region that one part of it, one copy will be methylated at that region and the other uh, parental copy will be unmethylated. So again, as I go back, 100 plus zero divided by two is 50. So in somatic cells, these regions will look, when you sequence for DNA methylation, looking for DNA methylation, they'll look like they're 50% methylated. And that will be the case in all the cells in our body because they these marks came in from the gametes. Right. The egg and the sperm. So when they come together, you have one copy that doesn't work and one copy that does work and that one usually the one that does work is the one that's unmethylated this one here and it the one that's methylated is the one that doesn't work so it gives rise to parent of origin dependent monoallelic expression and every imprinted gene is going to have at least one or maybe more of these imprint regulatory regions these regions we now know can vary from tens of bases up to thousands of bases with an average of around 250 bases. That's really quite small when you think about, what is it, 3 billion bases that we have in our, in our human genome. Right. And we found them going through and looking for these regions. And I won't go into what we did, but basically using this information that I'm talking about, it's a fingerprint, and we look for that fingerprint 50% in all tissues, zero and 100 in sperm and egg. Boom, we came up with 1,488 of these regions, which suggests that there are at least 1,488 genes that are in our genome of 19,500 genes that are genomically imprinted.
0: Scattered across all the chromosomes,
1: all across the whole, and including some on the X. Very strange. Yeah, very, very strange. So the question now, and this is where we're at, and then I'll let you get a word in here, but we did all of that beautifully, and we pulled the oocyte, the egg methylation sequencing, off the web. There was a group in Japan that did that, but it wasn't great depth. So of the 1488, the depth was only great enough on the sperm was not a problem. We got great sperm data and we've got really pretty darn good somatic cell data. And remember, it has to be 50% in three different tissues. Why? Because they were picked to be in the three different germ layers. So that means that the change was already there at day one before there was any differentiated
0: cell types. So this this really goes back to being able to get as far upstream as you can to know where things went sideways right the we're back to the big bang <laughs> i'm a physicist yeah we're
1: back in the big bang era and this is really <laughs> interesting because this is where everything started going yeah. differentiation wise and stuff like this and you got all the branches but we're back down to the day almost the very earliest stages of development right the embryonic stem cells right and it's changes that occur then because of the maternal environment maybe the paternal you know and also what they came in with because the previous generation could affect the methylation levels if one copy was supposed to be methylated and the other unmethylated let's say the father's was methylated and the mother's not and this methylation didn't happen in the and because something the father did that didn't allow it now you've got two copies and you have no expression
0: yeah big trouble
1: big trouble And the other way around, you can have two copies and two is too much too. It's devastating. And usually they're diametrically opposed because they're controlling growth in general. One will be overgrowth and the other one will be an undergrowth phenomena if it makes it through the filtration of reproduction. Some of them are so critical and so bad that they they result in spontaneous abortions. They're just not compatible with life. Hmm. They're that important.
0: Yeah. And, and again, I think when I think of spontaneous abortions, I think of of God or nature's way of not allowing something to come to term that's going to be a burden right. and frankly not able to be valuable. So I know it's like Turner syndrome, 99% of the children abort before delivery because the body senses problem, the immune system goes and attacks it and takes it out epigenetically, I'm guessing again. Again, I don't right. know if anyone's elucidated that reality. So. Knowing all of this, let's let's take one of your one of the imprinted genes as an example. And what happens to it being turned on too much, or if it's turned off too much? Give me some examples of where we think this is going to come out. Because I know this this is you've just laid the roadmap. Now we have to tra- travel the road to see what we learn by testing and analysis. What do we know now?
1: Well, we've known this one. I'm going to tell is that you know we've known a long time. You know, Beck with Wiedemann syndrome and uh, uh, what's the opposite of it? Silver Russell syndrome. Yeah, you know one. beckwith with syndrome. It's it's it can one way in which this can occur is the regulatory element for IGF2 expression. IGF2 is expressed only from one copy, and it's the one from the father. So if you have too much IGF2, you have Beckwith wiedemann syndrome. There's overgrowth increased incidence of cancer, et cetera. The other way around where you have basically both copies are turned off. So you have no IGF-2 and that's a one me- mechanism for silver Russell syndrome. You have reduction in size and all of the developmental disorders that go along with silver Russell syndrome. That's right. just one. Right. And it, again, you notice the diametrically opposite. One's an undergrowth, the other one's an overgrowth. right? these kinds of problems are also happening in the brain. Uh, uh, Christopher Babcock wrote the incredible book and made the hypothesis based on Haig's theory that called the imprinted brain. And that if you have too much paternally expressed genes, and that can be either by too little expression of the maternal expressed genes, and or too much of the paternal expressed genes. It gives rise to the neurologic, this is a hypothesis now, to the neurological hypothesis uh, uh, condition that we call autism. It's an overgrowth problem. The antithesis then would be too much maternal and or too little paternal, and that gives rise, according to this theory, to the antithesis of autism in this theory, which is schizophrenia. So every neurological disorder now falls between these two extremes, according to this, and it's based to a great extent on the inappropriate expression of imprinted genes that gives rise to a net over father or over mother uh, expression. Mother genes, expressed genes, tend to be growth inhibitory. Father imprinted genes tend to be growth stimulatory if you did and this has been done by Barry Cavern uh, looking at where are imprinted genes expressed when they're maternal or paternal or not random the paternal ones tend to be in the ancient brain the hypothalamic region the amygdala and the maternal ones tend to be in the neocortex it's the brake system basically for the ancient brain so those th- those two regions have to con, con- they have to connect and contact and talk to each other properly to give rise to what we call a normal individual. If they're out of balance one way or the other, according to this theory, you get these two extremes and everything else comes out by having more or less of that problem available. Now that we have the human imprint home, we can start looking at this experimentally and really
0: dissecting it out.
1: We couldn't do that before because we didn't know the repertoire of
0: imprinted genes. Right. And what's fascinating, I think, if I'm hearing this correct as well, is schizophrenia being the underfed state is not increasing in volume, to my knowledge, whereas autism, which is the overfed states going through the roof. I mean, California, I think last check was one in twenty three. And what do we have? We have a massive overfeeding problem. And unfortunately, I'm assuming again that the biggest person that's at risk for being overfed is mom. Right.
1: And that's another thing. We know that when you have a severe lack of food, we know that from the Dutch famine study, what does it give rise to? Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. Yeah. What do we have in this country? Not a severe lack, but a severe over food in basically carbs, basically. I mean, glucose kinds of things. And it's possible that this could be in part fueling the rise in autism that we see in our yeah. children. It's not been yeah. demonstrated, but you know, it's an interesting concept because we do know that lack of food gives rise to schizophrenia. That's been demonstrated by the starvation, natural starvation experiment in the Dutch famine and also in China. And I think there's at least maybe one or two other places where that's been shown to occur. The other way around where you have two, that has not been looked at. I don't think like that, but it should be now. And now that we have the human imprint tone, we can start looking at these, yeah. what effects they're having on those regulatory elements. Right. And then at the same time, we can look at expression of genes because right. we know the genes that are controlling.
0: I would love for you to get Dr. Hoyo to look at two genes, if they are part of the imprintome, and again, I have not memorized, so I wouldn't even know, but the T regulator, FOXP3 and NLRP3 inflammasomes, because all of the research that I'm doing keeps coming back to inflammasomes being a major activator of all kinds of dysfunction. There was an article just published in PNAS Nexus, where they looked at mental health, mood disorders, so anxiety and depression, and NLRP3 inflammasomes are actually downregulating Fox Chris,
1: P3. We, we've, we've just found that in autism. I think in the Cameron lecture, I mentioned that. Did there you? Two, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Uh, there are two genes that popped out that were common. The thing that's most, that came out of the first, this is, it's in, it's in review right now. But the first thing that we demonstrated is that about 120 genes, these were looking at brains with Alzheimer's and African Americans and, and Caucasians. Right. Right. 80, we have found 120 genes that were deregulated at the im at the well the 1488 imprintome of the of the imprintome 1488 sites. 120 of them were deregulated in Alzheimer's brains compared to controls. Right. Of that, 80 of them were found in blacks, and only 40 are found in whites. So it appears that. African-Americans might be getting to Alzheimer's at an incidence that's higher than what you see in Caucasians, but getting at it through a different route, i.e. the epigenetic route, the programming route, compared to Caucasians, which are principally getting to that problem through genetic mutations. And of those 120, 80 and 40, only two overlap, and one of them is the inflammasome gene that you just talked
0: about. Wow. So th- it's, again, a nurse, this is what,
1: it's it's an inflammatory disease.
0: This is one of these and aha it's common
1: mo- in both whites and blacks. So it's yeah. potentially a screener from something that was happening from very early on.
0: So so this is Different. a fascinating. This is this is another aha moment, Randy. So when we were offline, I was talking about Rick Johnson. He just published a paper in June looking at NLRP3 inflammasome activation by uric acid, which theoretically is a a euphemism for fructose and glucose starch ingestion, which drives uric acid very high, which activates NLRP3. Oh, by the way, that delays placentation of
1: the spiral arteries. This is, if I'm not mistaken, this is the gene that's called a pyro pyro basically isn't it gene? exactly that, it's a
0: pyro it's i had never pyropto- heard
1: about this before when it popped up i said god this is like fire apoptosis
0: it's exactly right it's it's a, it's called pyroptosis and 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 there's another one well, that i think goes this is by. the gene chris this it, is it the gene. Wow. it has to be because it is it, it, it's called caspase one is a protein that gets brought together and it turns into a fireball it's a part of the innate immune system and oh by the way i was just up in Boston teaching with Rob Lustig, and he was talking about how fructose also turns on something called methylglyoxal. And methylglyoxal happens to turn on caspase three, which is a different version of apoptosis. So we keep getting back to this fundamental reality that there was probably a reason these primordial innate immune molecules were there to help us survive infection. And oh, by the way, now, it's being overturned on by this massive consumption of glucose and fructose as starch and sugars. And the placenta, the, it, Rick's work was unbelievable. The, the placental spiral arteries didn't get in like normal at eight to 12 weeks and were delayed weeks, which caused a hypoxic state to persist, which caused endothelial damage, which then led to preeclampsia, which then is the number one risk factor for autism. Um, and it's all- It also di-
1: has it, been postulated by David Haig to involve imprinted genes,
0: yes. So everything comes back to your work. I, you know, I, again, it's a web of understanding.
1: But Chris, I love my work, so don't, you don't need to tell me how wonderful it is. But it, it, what we've got now with the human imprint home is the ability. This is just one. This is just one disease. You can ask. You can ask this question of every disorder, every exposure that we know. Yeah. Is the imprint home involved, and if so, which genes are? And you will find some of the most fundamental genes that are involved in the process because they're they changed very early. They're very early. It's not that they can't change later on, but they change very early, and that's why it's a developmental disorder. You know, autism, not well, autism is developed, schizophrenia is developed, but the same thing with with Alzheimer's disease. There's, there with the NUN study and the IQ test, we know that this stuff is already occurring way back when, real early. It doesn't, it, it shows up at age, usually age 60 or 70, but this has been going on for the susceptible, they're on different, people are on different trajectories and some are on bad trajectories. And then if they don't, If they don't take care of themselves and they don't eat well and don't exercise, they're going to hit the problem state early where their, where their projectory goes and crosses the line by potentially altering your diet and stuff. You might be able to jam it down so it goes out long enough that you die of something else before you start having memory problems. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is really exciting stuff. We can do all this now. And we just now we're in the process of working with True Diagnostics and also with Illumina. And we have an imprintome chip. And we're now determining how well this works. If it works reasonably well, it allows everybody in the world, basically, to be able to screen relatively easily and relatively inexpensively to look for the genes that are potentially involved in anything you're interested in. And then you go in once you find that information and now you can start doing massive sequencing on those loci and start figuring out mechanistically what's going on in anything you're interested in.
0: So here comes the question, right? Because this is all unbelievably beautiful. How do you then go back? Because again, in a goody mouse study, you have the ability to give the mouse who we know deterministically what we think is going to happen, and then we know epigenetically now what does happen. How do we do this in humans other than, cause we, we can study what happened, but how do we study, you know, I, I guess I'm driving at it in a very circuitous way. How do we understand what th- phthalates are doing to us if we can't do a control versus non-control experiment other than maybe check tissue levels of phthalates in moms And compare it to ones who have less versus more, and see what the epigenetic marks are. How do we do this?
1: Well, the one is what you're saying, but it's very labor intensive. It's epidemiology, and you get the it. It's not. It's not like you knock this out and you see this effect. But also, ultimately, the weight of the evidence demonstrates that this is what's going on. But that takes a long time and costs a lot of money. You can't necessarily always go into model systems because imprinted genes, even though, even though. IGF-2, for example, is paternally expressed in every species that we've looked at and every species I've looked at and every species that anybody's looked at in theory in mammals. IGF-2 receptor is not the case. It was present and then it was lost and now it's back in us and we don't have any clue exactly how it's working in us right now. But it is differentially methylated, again, in the exact same region in intron 2, whereas lemurs... Tree shrews, flying lemurs down below don't have this differentially methylated region at all. And you go down below that and it's there. So it was physically lost. What this means to me anyway, is that once the phenomena of imprinting arose, it was used in the process of speciation. And that's why you have variations of the repertoires, not the imprint, but the repertoires of imprinted genes between species. So your question is really quite valid and very, very important because you can't necessarily use animal models to look at these because these genes that are so important in these early processes and these disease susceptibility phenomena are not regulated the same in every species. Right. So my only guess for this is epidemiology, obviously, and possibly organoid cultures of human cells so that you can start- Looking and nobody that I know of has done that. It would be very, very interesting to have a organoid culture system for autism or Alzheimer's or whatever. And now look at in those organ cultures the imprint home. Yeah. I hey Chris, we just we just we just defined an Nih grant application <laughs> that should be funded. I love it. I love huh? it.
0: I love it. Yes. I mean,
1: this is how this is how damn easy this is. Excuse yeah. my language. Darn easy. Yeah, Just yeah, yeah. Once you know where you want to look and need to look, the whole thing becomes easier except for what you're talking about. What systems do we now use? The only ones I can think of is looking at them from an imprint standpoint. These organoid cultures and see if
0: any of them help us. Right, that's fascinating. Question: um, I was about to ask and I forgot to. IGF two is expressed paternally. We lost IGF two R. Did it come back maternally or paternally?
1: It's maternally expressed again in humans. There's that a balance of, point again. But it's funny. It's it's really funny because it shows up as supposedly an embryonic tissue as being a poly, it's polymorphic. In other words, some embryos were shown to have it. Some. My guess is this isn't correct, because when you're looking at very early embryos, you could have a different representation of tissue types in one sample versus the other. So in one, one tissue, you've got wherever imprinting is, wherever the imprints are red so that you have monoallelic expression, you see it. Whereas otherwise, if there's too much of the tissue that's biologically expressing IGF-2R, it'll mask it in this individual. So this one will look like this individual does not have IGF-2R imprinted. So it'll look like it's a polymorphic trait, but I don't believe it is a polymorphic trait between embryos. I think it's a polymorphic trait between tissue types and you have a sampling difference between these samples, because you're working with tissues that are, you know, not optimal, obviously. And nobody went in and cut out exactly the same region to look at it. For example, in the brain of a mouse, IGF2R is expressed on both on both copies from neuronal cells and glial cells. It's expressed if you dissect them out and look at only that population. It's monoallelically expressed. Hmm. Right adjacent cell types. The marks are there, they came in, they were inherited, but they're not, as I tell people, just because I write a paper doesn't mean you have to read the paper. And it's the same thing with imprint marks, just because they're there, they came in maybe even appropriately, but they don't have to be read and they're not read. Can you imagine the variation that you can have in expression of genes when you can vary the expression of a growth regulatory and Hox genes in time and space and sex mm-hmm. and species, yeah, I make the exaggerated comment: with this system, I can make an animal that walks on four legs and has a tail and stand up and talk.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it, it, how it, it,
1: powerful it, this system is in changing a phenotype of an individual, and then through natural selection, it becomes fixed. Right.
0: The, the, so the you're permutations. Is- a
1: mutational. Event that's coupled to a powerfully different
0: expression. Yeah, the the, the permutations and yeah, the permutations in three billion base pairs is infinite. And so, to your point, you, you it's it's a it, it's such an elegant system. It and it's, it's so fast.
1: Be- it's relatively fast,
0: right? Yeah, it's it's very fast considering Darwin was way wrong on that one. <laughs> Very wrong on that one. We do change rapidly in real time. And unfortunately, to your point, in a society that's loaded with toxins, bad food, stress and poor exercise, we're changing rapidly into a very dysfunctional species, which in in the long run, you know, it may may force us to make some drastic changes as a society if we're ever going to survive this. Because right now, at the rate we're going, we're in big trouble.
1: No, I had really, I you know me, I, I tend, I'm an engineer, so I tend to think of things more. How can I make questions simple and address things? So the I why why the human imprint on one is what we just talked about, but what I've always been interested in is looking at the role of imprinting in speciation. Right. Now that we have the pipelines for doing this, we could we not me but maybe. I don't think it will be me, but somebody can start looking at different species and finding out the genes that are imprinted in us versus the ones that are, in, let's say, imprinted in chimpanzees and the ones that aren't. Imprinted. And you can start getting an idea of what genes might have played very, very important um, differences and not differences, very important roles in the literal, literal, literal speciation of right. our of us. Right, and you could even go back to Neanderthals uh, and, and look at them too, right? Because yeah. our, our those genes are inserted into our genome. Right. Are those regions, any of those regions imprinted? And if so, what are they? This yeah. has not been looked at,
0: Chris. This is almost like it's almost like you're able to do um, carbon sampling um, yeah. between you generations. Do,
1: you can do evolutionary studies with our nearest extinct ancestors on the cheap. I think.
0: You just defined an entire new biological science.
1: Hey, let's write another grant application.
0: Oh, my God. I love it. You know, I and the it. problem
1: is that more than likely if we submitted it, if I submitted it, it wouldn't be funded.
0: Right. Because because <laughs> it, it, it's not understood yet. Totally
1: because true. They just can't do this. It's not possible.
0: Right. Yeah. You're thinking too far outside the box for those in the in the halls of power, which is something, another reason I, I find myself happy in private practice, because there's no halls of power that are telling me what I can and can't do. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's kind of where
1: we, we are at. But I think of the imprint home and what the final thing that I want to talk about, and it's very difficult technically. So we don't have good oocyte methylation sequence. And that's what we're working on right now with uh, with some collaborators and also in our laboratory. And as you can imagine, I mean, getting human oocytes is not like getting human sperm, right? You know, very, very small numbers of eggs are available uh, because women have been given them to research that we can use. But obviously, they're very expensive um, and very small numbers. So sequencing this with DNA methylation sequencing is the worst that you can possibly do because you have the bisulfite convert. So you're destroying stuff already and you already don't have very much DNA. So right. putting it all together, this is a tough project, but it has to be done because once we get that complete, you notice I said, once we get it, not if, once we yeah, get this complete, we are going to get this then we can start making the decision where we've only been able to do it for 300 genes that we know are mat- what if they're maternally methylated or paternally and they are inherited more than likely we will be able to take that remaining 1200 genes or imprint regulatory elements and put them into the true imprint home version 2 rather than version 1 and take the other ones and put them into an area where they could have occurred after fertilization or they're not an imprint regulatory element at all that's what needs to be done so the number will come down but it should be more and more viable in other words accurate
0: right right and then again you then you have such an ability to start to now drill down into where the real issues are occurring so it's it's fascinating and I, you know I want to touch on something you said and this is more for the The students listening to this podcast are those in the space of the engineer's mind. Uh, You know, offline again, we talked about Catherine Hoyos lab and what you guys did, uh, especially her work at the bench for multiple years to gain the knowledge to be a tier one researcher. And, and I want to, state to anyone listening to this, when you do any form of research or any form of production, I think of, again, Elon Musk, sort of like we talked about offline, first principles matter. And to me, first principles are, how do you do something at the base level, and build it up to be the best it can be? And that doesn't always mean following the person who did it before you. Sometimes it means blazing the trail, right? So in your case, you blazed the trail, right? It was yeah. relatively... There was stuff out there there was this there was that but there was too much negativity around the possibility and to say negativity to possibility is to stop sp- stop growth of humans right and that would be like saying Jonas salk or edwin jenner oh it's not possible to have a vaccine or all these other ridiculous things and so for the students listening to this podcast number one thing is stop listening to those who tell you no no is a stupid answer it's just we may not have technology we may not have the understanding yet but the answer is that is there. The second thing I want to state is there is no such thing as junk in the human body. (laughs) And you proved that perfectly. And, and, and finally to be an engineer's mind is to actually answer questions, right? And and you've done that because you think in a way that is question, answer, question, answer, iterate, 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 until you come up with, like you say, here, we have an oocyte problem. Well, we're going to get the answer. It just depends on how, what, and where. And, That's what we need in science, Randy. I mean, we need to clone you or Catherine or many other people and start putting this stuff to work at a higher level instead of the nose. I mean, I think COVID drove me nuts with all the garbage. So I'm looking for more pure science. So love it. Love your work. You know, I do. My major professor. Well, thank you
1: very much, Chris, for your kind comments. It's not easy, uh, as you would imagine, because, you know, not not just me, but anybody who's gone particularly through the early era, and and Catherine really is through the early, not the earliest, but quite early also. And back in that early day, and I still, I think still really, people would literally told people, not me, uh, but people before, because the ones that were working in the cancer research field, that if they continued doing continue doing epigenetic research so that they would have no career because everybody knows that cancer is a genetic disease well it's right. the same thing everything we've been talking about is the fact that the problem and the error was con- is thinking that what you're looking at is only genetic right that there wasn't a powerful enough system to make low doses of radiation induce a positive adaptive response So therefore, it's not just that there's no known, there is no mechanism according to these people by which this can happen. So all the results that were out there showing this, showing it, were totally disregarded. And as I said to one of my friends, it's very easy to disregard someone else's data. But when we saw all brown animals in the low-dose radiation exposure experiment, when we thought we would see all yellow animals, it's much harder to say that your results are garbage. Yeah, your personal results. It's easy right. to say other people's results are garbage, but not yours. Right. We had a we had a look at it. Right. Yeah. And we did, but it's not easy. It's not. It's not an easy road to hoe because it's not. It's tough. Well,
0: and to that to that statement though, Randy, the easy roads don't ever turn out with anything great. It's the hard roads that lead to exceptional understandings. I think even just the integrated functional medicine movement, there's a hard road to get to the point where you're getting people to understand biochemistry, hormesis, you know, epigenetics, everything else. The I, I still shudder out. Again, I was teaching this weekend up in Boston and I gave the discussion around 2008 when I started to learn deep microbiome data on the gut. And one of my friends who's a pediatric gastroenterologist basically stated it was till 2015 before the major PEDS GI conference even brought up the microbiome. It's their discipline. And I was teaching it as a general pediatrician, a full, what is that, seven years. And so I think there's a lot to be said about what you're saying. It's a hard road to get people to understand the new science and accept that what they've believed for 25, 30 years or whatever could be wrong. And if i if I learned anything in science, I hold my beliefs very tightly until somebody shows me better data and then I wipe them out and move on. Because if you don't, you're just lost and you're stuck in the past. I mean, just like antibiotics. What damage we've done to kids for the past 40 years by overusing antibiotics. It's terrible. And those that still do it, you know, to me, it's unconscionable in modern America to be continuing to give out antibiotics at high volume knowing the data. Data is bad. And again, we'll see understanding what the epigenetic event of all this is. We know the microbiome side of it, which is bad.
1: The microbiome stuff, I've always thought, and maybe I don't keep up with it that much. But, you know, at some point, the microbiome has got to interact with the genome. And that's got to be through the epigenetic changes, too. Guaranteed. It's the same. It's just another mechanism by which you're changing the the epigenome, and that can happen very early in development if you're in utero at that time, or it can happen later on. And what effects you see will be dependent upon what age you're at. Uh, But it's got to be something like that because... Guaranteed. I'm with you
0: I'm with you 100%, Randy. I think it is. And again, it's just a matter of time until we start to elucidate what that data is. Again, I was so thrilled by that PNAS Nexus paper because again, it was it was a regulatory event that was occurring to the Fox p 3 gene, which turned off the Treg cells, which are the immune system's military police. And if they're not working right, oh well, inflammation turns on and doesn't shut off. And that's a really bad thing if you're pregnant. And that's actually what maternal activation syndrome, which leads to autism, is related to. It's over overloaded immune activation and lrp3 is right at the head of that lrp3 tends to be the one that looks like it's involved in the gene regulation so i think it is epigenetic again can't prove it cuz i don't have the science but the the study makes complete sense to me based on what i read
1: Now, we got it when we get off the air i got to go look to see what the name because i'm not familiar with exactly the name of the gene that we found but i know it's uh, it's it's involved in in apoptosis, pyroapoptosis. So whatever yeah. that N R or something is, that the one, yeah, you would...
0: yeah, N L R P three is 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 nod like, uh, yep. nod like receptor for py, for protein three, nod like receptor protein three, or so it and, starts and, with an
1: N, right? And N L, yes.
0: yeah, N L R P three. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a big player. And, oh, by the way, it was one of the two main components in COVID death. It might be. It might is there a one also uh there it are popped. multiple of them yeah there's there's one I think it's three, the one nine. that
1: popped up for
0: us not the three yeah 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 there's it's multiple one of them. those
1: genes <laughs> yeah.
0: super fascinating Randy um I don't know what else to add I think we've covered the beauty of your work as it is new with the imprintome and everything else uh I I'm it's thrilled that we've been able to share all this exciting because again, I know you've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Your work is hope. It's not scary sadness. It is hope that as a human society, we are so adaptable. If we listen to what you're saying, and the Goody Mouse motto was the most beautiful model of balance, humans have hope to live long and prosperous lives. It's our decision making, our choice that leads to function or dysfunction. And I want to end it with, the, with something along the lines of what you said, but my major
1: professor told me many years ago. And it sounds funny when you hear it, but in line with what you were talking about before it makes sense, he said, sometimes you can read too much. (laughs) By that, he meant not that you weren't supposed to read the literature, but sometimes when you read the literature, it tells you it's already been done or that it's not important. And you've got to go with your gut and, and do things that make sense to you and then... It won't be easy, but it'll. I can guarantee
0: it will be an exciting ride. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, you have been on an exciting ride and still are on that ride for the last twenty plus years, and in in since the Goody Mouse publication came out. And Randy, it's an absolute pleasure to know you. Absolute pleasure to be a part of your world and your work. I've learned so much from you, and I am grateful for everything you've done for humanity. Uh, for me personally, and for all the kids that I get the fortune of learning how to help them live better lives.
1: Well, thanks very much, Chris. And it's been great talking to you again. Bye.
0: So this interview is part one of a three-part series on the epigenetics research that has laid the framework for our understanding of fetal origins of disease and essentially the adaptability of the human species to the world in a good and unfortunately bad way. And as you heard in this piece, we've learned a lot in the last 20 years since Dr. Jurdle shook the ground of science and medicine by helping us understand Lamarckian theory as opposed to just straight Darwinian logic where we are mechanistically set up for disease based on the amalgam of mom and dad's genetics. And we've learned now that that's clearly not true, which is so hopeful as a clinician to start to be able to understand the upstream reasoning behind the diseases of childhood and then the diseases of aging, and now not only do we have the original mechanistic understanding of the Agouti mouse model, but now we have actually a cassette of imprinted genes with their with their ICRs, their imprintome control regions that now can be tested and studied, moving forward to help us understand where did the actual beginning or genesis of a dysfunction occur. We know that if you take two identical twins with the exact genome, exactly the same, word for word, printed DNA, that they don't end up the same as the age. And we've always known this to be a function of something that happens to the DNA. Dr. Journal's work is the epigenetic understanding of how that occurs, why one child differentially expresses certain genes as opposed to another now the main thrust of everything we need to do moving forward is to start to say how do we ask the questions as to why this is occurring what is causing a change in the methylation of dna at a promoter region right and we know with the Goody mouse model that we saw food was a net positive chemicals were net negative i assume this is going to be very similar in humans and again dr Kara Fitzgerald's work goes into some of this with her anti-aging or at least the beginning of trying to slow down aging in humans and so, for me, this becomes a new, wholly incredible way for us to start to understand our disease susceptibility and how that can be modified over time through many of the inputs that we talk about all the time that are these lifestyle levers that we get to pull on, whether it's nutrition, adequate sleep, movement or exercise, avoidance of toxins, right, in high volume or even moderate volume. But to Dr. Jurdle's point on hormesis, there may be low levels of toxins that are actually stimulating and beneficial, right? We think of this in plants, right? And he was talking about that, uh, that plants, they're majorly adaptable species. Maybe plants are functionally, just like humans, able at very low doses of an irritant to develop resistance and strength against. I think that's one of the problems with plants now. When they're given tons of pesticides, they don't have to learn to resist so they don't get as powerful in the sense of their chemicals inside that we used to benefit from. And oh, by the way, the toxicity of the chemicals that are put on them is secondarily problematical. So remember to think about DNA in any cell as being, as Dr. Jurdle explains it, comparable to the hardware of a computer, right? Whereas the epigenetic pieces, the imprintome regions, are the software, the instructions that tell the hardware, the DNA, the genes, what to do. And we can view this as a functioning programmable computer, the dna is the hardware the hard computer but all the environmental inputs are the functional programmable side of this thus we think about this from anything from chemical exposures to physical exposures to energetic exposures that they can have an effect on the software of the components of any cell in the body and we're not sure which cell but we can start looking at which cell right his research on radiation epigenetics says there is something that can happen even at low doses again and he talked about this again with the phenomenon of hormesis and we know that at very low doses of environmental exposures to, to low dose radiation that he defined as you know less than ten, um, of the the units I cannot remember the name of the units that we use, you know in in nuclear physics and and radiation physics that that dose actually was was beneficial, and much to our learning now that maybe we can really start to leverage these things moving forward for an epigenetic response. Again, now we have an ability to look and see what happens and can we modify this over time. So I'm very excited of the future, looking at what we're going to see with respect to the epigenome and the imprintome as the roadmaps to understanding the future of human health and the future of medicine. And I cannot wait to continue to follow the amazing research of Dr. Hoyo, and Dr. Journal as they continue to blaze trails into previously unknown spaces of human health and human disease. So that's it for today. Get ready for part two with Dr. Moshe Schiff. And this time we're gonna look at epigenetics from a different perspective. We're gonna look at it from nature versus nurture. Is it the genetics that drive human health or is it the nurturing, the behavioral availability of a parent to a child, the love energy connection that's more important? You probably know where I'm thinking this is going to go, but we'll pause till next time for the answer. And then we'll follow that second epigenetics lecture up with the third one, which is sort of the clinical applications of epigenetics with Dr. Bridget Briggs. So let's end it there. As always, I super appreciate Dr. Jurdle for coming back onto the show to give us his incredible information I hope he wins the Nobel Prize someday for his research. I think he is just one of my favorite researchers, just an incredible human and an even better man. So hug those kids. I'll see you next time. The disclaimer is as follows. The information provided in this podcast is for educational informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. Have a great day.